Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly with you, joined by Katrina Blowers. And in this episode, we're going to explore whether 2023 will be the end of COVID. Yeah, so many interesting questions right now. Will the situation in China throw a spanner in the works? Will deaths start to trend downwards, making last year the deadliest of the pandemic? Also, what about this new variant in the US? We're going to be putting all these questions to infectious diseases expert, Associate Professor Paul Griffin. These variants arise when the virus makes mistakes when it's reproducing. And because the virus is reproducing all over the world, the next new troubling variant could arise anywhere. And in fact, it looks like it might have arisen in the United States already. That interview in the second half of this episode. First, today's headlines. It's Tuesday, the 10th of January. Well, first to the explosive Prince Harry interviews. We'd seen the promo clips, but now the two main TV interviews have gone to air. So he spoke to Anderson Cooper for 60 minutes in the US and Tom Bradby on ITV in the UK, all about his tell-all memoir, Spare, which comes out tomorrow. And here's what he said about his stepmother, the Queen Consort Camilla, on 60 Minutes. That made her dangerous because of the connections that she was forging within the British press. And there was open willingness on both sides to trade of information. On the way to being Queen Consort, there was going to be people or bodies left in the street. Wow, strong words for Camilla there. Bodies left on the street called her dangerous as well, Mm. Katrina. Yeah, uh, obviously those words were well considered, um, like everything else that they've done too. So in the 60 Minutes interview, he said it was the press teams of his brother and father that forced him out of the country and that he doesn't talk to his brother or father anymore. He also explained in the ITV interview uh, why he's exposing everything in a book. The level of planting and leaking from other members of the family means that, in my mind, they have written countless books. You know, silence only allows the abuser to abuse. Oh, wow, that's interesting. I think a lot of people would have sympathy that the, you know, the other members of the royal family had a lot more power, and when Harry and Meghan were feeling under attack from the press, they would have loved a lot more support. But I feel like this is not the right way to deal with it. And I know there's no easy way to deal with it and to restore that balance of power but this is only going to do more damage to the family. Look, there's two things that I sort of took away from this. The first is that he says that he's still open to forgiveness and that he wants a relationship with his brother and father. And you're right, Tom, this is not the best way to go about that if that's genuinely what he wants. And the second thing is that at some point, if these guys, if Harry and Meghan want to create their own media empire, they want the world to see them in a different way, at some point their narrative is going to need to change. And what's that narrative going to be? They don't seem to have much to say beyond just throwing stones. Yeah, well, I guess they'll be doing charity work and, you know, working towards social justice. And the thing was with that, though, I guess that they were already doing that before and they had a lot of power to do that within the royal family, actually. Mm. And his brother and um, Kate, they do that all the time. So I don't know how the narrative yeah. really stands out after they throw everyone under the bus. I think I think that's a good point you make there. And crazy scenes out of Brazil. You're listening there to the sounds of around 3,000 people storming government buildings in the capital, Brasilia. 
So similar to the capital riots by Trump supporters in Washington two years ago, supporters of the former far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, broke into and then ransacked the parliament, the presidential palace and the Supreme Court. Uh, 1,200 of those protesters have now been detained. And here's what the new president, uh, President Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, had to say. We think there was a lack of security, and I want to tell you that all the people who did this will be found and punished. So the background to this is that Bolsonaro lost the presidential election to left-wing Lula in October, and then, like Trump, he made unsubstantiated claims about a faulty voting system, and so many of his supporters refused to accept the result of the election. Now, he's denied encouraging the attack, And he was critical of the protesters in a public statement. Uh, He's in Florida. What I found so fascinating about the, the, the way that they've captured so many of these protesters already is due mainly to social media influencers who are critical of Bolsonaro. So they asked some of their supporters, like there's a YouTuber over there who's got 16 million supporters to screenshot uh, video, and that's how they managed to arrest people. But so worrying, Tom, that uh, this is a kind of similar narrative to what we saw playing out in Washington. Yeah, where they don't accept you know, election results where they basically challenge the legitimacy of key democratic institutions like elections, parliaments, in this case, Mm. even the Supreme Court. Thankfully, one key difference between this and the events in Washington two years ago is that there were no deaths or injuries. So that's a bit of good news there. The PM has visited the flood-ravaged Kimberley region. The roads uh, can't usable. Uh, the bridge into Fitzroy Crossing has basically been destroyed. So the only way that goods can be got in at the moment is by air. That's Albanese on the ABC there. Much of the Kimberley is cut off from the rest of the country and it could stay that way for weeks. The damage bill could be in excess of a billion dollars and the region is only a third of the way through its wet season. And Australian house prices have plummeted, posting their largest fall on record, even worse than at the time of the GFC. So they've dropped 8.4% nationally, and that's less than nine months after peaking last May. This is according to CoreLogic. Three of the capital cities saw the worst decline, Sydney at 13%, Brisbane at 10%, Melbourne down 8.6%. And they're going to keep going if the RBA keeps raising interest rates, which the major banks are expecting them to do. Yeah, usually what's bad news for homeowners is good news for people seeking to get into the market, but there are so many banks tightening up lending at the moment that I don't know who this is good news for. Mm. I think it just makes everyone feel a bit sick. Yeah, it'll be one of the big stories of the year is what the Reserve Bank do, how much further they go jacking up rates to try and rein in inflation. A lot of indicators are pointing to the fact that inflation is starting to ease in lots of countries, including Australia, where it's already started going down. The question is how much they keep the handbrake on, how much damage does it do to homeowners? And tennis players will be able to play in the Australian Open even if they have COVID with the tournament confirming competitors don't need to take a COVID test. I feel like I've got whiplash here from (laughs) (laughs) how different things are this year compared to just one year ago. So last year, players had to test daily and isolate if they tested positive. They also had to be vaccinated. While in 2021, the event took place in a biosecure bubble. And of course, we 
all know about Novak Djokovic, who was locked up and sent home for not being vaccinated. And I guess cut to this Friday night and he's playing a charity match against Nick Kyrgios. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see his reception at the Games, um, this charity match, but then at the Australian Open, how how the crowds applaud or boo or how they how they receive him now that um, things have changed so much since last year. And speaking of how much things have changed on the COVID front, that's going to be our briefing topic in just a sec. Now to our briefing topic on whether 2023 will be the year that ends the pandemic. Let's hope so. Associate Professor Paul Griffin is the Director of Infectious Diseases at Marta Health in Brisbane. Paul, thanks so much for joining us on the briefing. Let's start with the end of last year. How do we finish 2022? Because even though our lives got back to normal, it was the deadliest year of the pandemic. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, China's showing us the same thing at the moment is those restrictions that we employed for the first year or so really did put us in a good position, kept our cases low to get people vaccinated. But once you relax a lot of those, and particularly when we talk about how infectious Omicron is, you're going to see a big wave in cases. And we saw a few waves. We obviously had a lot of people, unfortunately, end up unwell in hospital and, and lost a lot of lives. But because we did do all that good work to get a lot of people vaccinated, the impact of opening up and having those cases was certainly reduced. So while it was a bad year, when we look at how many people got COVID, how many people got sick from COVID, in the end, we actually did fairly well, I think, compared to a lot of other countries. So where are the death and the hospitalisation trends going now? Yeah, look, it's interesting. A lot of the commentary would say that, uh, you know, COVID's over and we're just learning to live with it. But we are still seeing, unfortunately, a lot of people end up in hospital and not survive this infection. And, you know, particularly those who are most vulnerable, we, we're seeing a number of deaths in aged care, for example. And and even though that makes people a much higher risk of bad consequences, the severe consequences don't occur exclusively in those high-risk people. So while I do think we did relatively well so far in the pandemic, it does show us we still have our work cut out for us. And, you know, we need to continue to do more to try and minimise the impact of the of this virus that's going to continue to circulate in our population. But will deaths go down this year or do you think they're going to continue where they have been for the last 12 months or even go up? Look, the one thing we know about this pandemic is it's unpredictable. So we can't say with any certainty, but I think all the evidence, what we know of other similar viruses, what we've seen with this virus so far, is that we would expect the trajectory to be one of improvement from here. Not saying it's just going to go away or we give up or forget about it, but as we see our vaccines still work well, particularly with severe diseases, we see so-called hybrid immunity where people's immune response is boosted by exposure. I'm not suggesting people should intend to do that, but that's of course what's happening that the deaths should continue to decline. And, and many countries like ours included, when we did open up and we first saw Omicron, we did have a big wave. But of course, now we have a population that's experienced it. And, and most people have actually been infected so far. So, you know, putting all that together, I think the death rate will decline. But, you know, to really make sure that happens, what we need to do is focus on things like keeping up boosters, getting access to antivirals and, you know, the best supportive care as quickly as possible. So, you know, again, it's not really going to happen by itself, but if we use of our available tools, the, the negative impacts of this virus should be reduced. So that would mean that when we look back in the history books, 2022 will have been the most deadliest year of the COVID-19 pandemic. I think that's a very reasonable expectation. I think, you know, and again, if we get complacent, if we just assume this is going to be the case, then we could really get caught out here. But I think if we if we do things properly, if we use all of our available tools, I think in retrospect, we look back and say, yeah, that was the most challenging year for the pandemic. 
All right. So we've got some interesting data that's coming out now. There was some out of the ACT that showed that four out of five COVID cases were people getting it for the first time. And certainly just, you know, among my friendship circle, people who gloated to me that they've managed to come this far through the pandemic and never have had it, they've been getting it this summer. So does that suggest that people who've already had it have a substantial level of immunity, meaning that it's good news that it's mostly first timers who are getting it now. Absolutely. I think, you know, those figures are really useful to show that it does mean that we've had some protection from past infection. It's not perfect, of course, and reinfections can happen. And we don't want people once they're infected to assume they're protected forever and, and just give up on, on making sure they do the right things. But th- those data do indicate that once you've had COVID, you do get an element of protection, both from infection and also some of the more severe consequences. So That's why we keep talking about this hybrid immunity. The best type of immunity is to be fully protected with vaccines. And and then when you're exposed to COVID, your illness will be reduced, but your immunity will be boosted. And and those people should expect to be protected for some period of time afterwards. So we are seeing a lot of people getting COVID for the first time now. And I think that does show that that hybrid immunity is a real thing and it's working quite well. So one of the X factors at the moment is what's happening in China. So they've stepped down from zero COVID and there's a huge wave of cases there at the moment. Could that affect us in a, in a really negative way? Could, for example, just throwing this out there, could a sudden explosion of cases there cause the virus to mutate into something more dangerous and then spread here? Are there scenarios like that we should be worried about? Well, this is pretty controversial at the moment and a lot of people are worried about the situation there and it's clear it is one of tremendous magnitude. There are a lot of people with COVID over there and I think the biggest challenge is we don't really fully understand that situation. And there's certainly been some calls from, from bodies like the WHO for some increased transparency so we know what the cases are and what the hospitalisation intensive care utilisation figures are as well so we can have a, an understanding of the magnitude there in terms of more severe disease. But, you know, at the moment COVID is everywhere and a lot of people have said because the case numbers given their population are likely to be high that increases the risk of a new variant emerging but you know these variants arise when the virus makes mistakes when it's reproducing and because the virus is reproducing all over the world the next new troubling variant could arise anywhere and in fact it looks like it might have arisen in the United States already so you know the China situation is one we need to watch it is one that we would really like to see some improvement in the transparency of data and and hopefully some improved management over there so the impact is reduced but I I really don't think it's going to impact us all that much. We have a lot of COVID right here, right now. And, you know, screening travellers, for example, I just don't think it's going to accomplish very much because, you know, I'm more likely to get COVID uh, out and about in the community at the moment from someone who who resides in this country because we have so much COVID here already as well. So I think the impact will be minimised, but we do need to, to watch. And, you know, we do need to look at what variants are circulating. And that's why I think the best situation would be to enhance our surveillance within our country and not just for the time being while China has their situation situation unfold, I think, moving forward. So we just continue to know what's happening with COVID in our country. So you mentioned a concerning variant in the US. Um, What info do you have about that? Now, like a lot of these new variants, when they arise, it's early days, so we do have to watch and see how it plays out. And XBB 1.5, when we look at it in the laboratory, we look where the changes in that virus are. They're pretty concerning. So immune evasion, this thing we've talked about with each of these new sub-variants when they arise, is that it's changed enough that protection, both from, from vaccination and past infection, is probably reduced. So reinfections do become a bit more likely. But 
the concerning thing in the, the lab data with that one is it appears to bind to the receptor that it gets into our cells, the, the ACE2 receptor. It appears to bind to that more strongly, meaning it's likely to be more infectious. And, you know, a few times we've looked at these changes in the lab and been concerned and it hasn't played out in the real world. But this one is out competing the existing subvariants where it's circulating in the United States in particular. Its proportion doubled within a week, meaning it does appear to be able to successfully outcompete the other subvariants. So it is one we definitely need to watch does not appear to be more severe. That's an important point. And even though protection from vaccines is reduced, hasn't rendered them ineffective. So there's not yet been a subvariant which our vaccines don't still work well, particularly against severe disease. But th this is one that we do have to watch really closely. So given everything we've talked about, all of these dynamics, the subvariants, the explosion of cases in China, the hospitalizations, deaths we're witnessing here in Australia, will the pandemic end this year? It's such a tricky question. And, you know, the, the end of the pandemic declaration, I think, is likely to occur. But by no means am I suggesting this virus is going to not be circulating in our population and continuing to cause us problems. I mean, that, that declaration has to end at a point in time. And when that is, it's hard to know. I think with the situation in China at XBB 1.5, it's not going to be in the next few weeks, for example. But I expect it will be likely this year. But as I say, we're still going to have to be battling this virus for the foreseeable future. We've got amazing tools to do that. If we don't use them, it'll catch us out and we will have a much bigger impact than we need to have. But I do expect that declaration will probably be downgraded at some point. Right. So what does that declaration mean? What are the requirements for it to be downgraded? Well, it's interesting because different people will, will say different definitions, but, you know, pandemic is where we're seeing global spread of something well above what we would expect. And of course, we don't know what level of COVID we should expect on a normal year because we haven't really settled down into a normal year just yet. So, you know, I think for a host of reasons, including to address people's fatigue and frustration with being in a pandemic for this duration, and hopefully because our available tools will continue to improve and our outcomes will also uh, trend towards improvement, that that declaration will be relaxed. But really, it won't change all that much. It will change how a lot of people think about things. It'll probably change some resourcing, which might be a bit of an issue. We're already seeing a lot of resources for COVID be withdrawn, I think, a little bit early, to be honest. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And so with all of that information, Paul, how should we go about living our lives this year? Look, I think this year is is one about getting back some balance and some common sense. I, I think the way we've played COVID in this country is to perhaps be a bit excessive with some of our measures. I think we we lacked common sense and compassion for the early phase of the pandemic. And, and then almost seemingly overnight, we've pivoted to being, I think, downplaying the significance of COVID just too much. And so, you know, I think striking the balance somewhere in the middle there where people understand the virus isn't going to go away by itself. It's not gone away already, most definitely. But we do have those amazing tools to combat it, but we need to use them. We need people to be boosted. We need people to stay home when they're unwell. We still need high rates of testing. We need to make sure people understand how to get antivirals quickly if they're eligible. Personally, I'd like to see boosters and antiviral eligibility expanded so more people get the benefits from those. And we need to continue to make sure we provide the best supportive care to patients and continue to try and reduce the spread of COVID in our community using things like ventilation and, and masks, for example. We don't need excessive rules like I think the testing requirements for travellers at the moment is one of those. We just need common sense. We need to educate people well. We need to address misinformation, all of those sorts of things. And as I say, just get a balance back where we're not giving up on COVID. We're not letting it rip, but we're also not letting it dominate our lives. And if we do that, I think the impact of it will be reduced and we'll just be in a good position to manage it well moving forward. 
And that's Associate Professor Paul Griffin, the Director of Infectious Diseases at Mater Health. Tom, I'd say he's uh, what they call cautiously optimistic. Yeah, he is. Some big takeouts there that he expects the WHO to end the pandemic declaration sometime this year. Um, also that deaths will trend downwards, making last year the deadliest year. And also that China and this big wave of infections they're having right now won't throw us off course. So it does seem that this pandemic is basically following the script that over several years you get variants that spread faster but are less harmful, meaning that along with vaccines we build up immunity in the population and the virus keeps circulating but does far less damage and we get back to normal. Yeah, but I guess too, he he does really stress that point that we still need to keep those vaccines up. So not great news if you still don't love getting a jab in the arm. Listener.